Sobriety, I don't care if you're a new new into sobriety or you've been in it for a long time, you still have like a sickness of the mind and how healthy the mind gets, it's still going to creep back in because they say that they say that addiction is cunning, baffling, and powerful. So you could be sober for eight years and then something tricky slides into the radar and there you are again, back in your disaster. And that's my story. My story is pretty much, I didn't even realize that I was sick until I was really beyond repair. And I mean, I was in the ICU a handful of times with the DTs and I couldn't hold a glass of water. It was like, it was like this. And I would have to put a straw in a pint of vodka because if I didn't get enough alcohol in my system, the withdrawal was so severe, but I couldn't hold a cup to my mouth. And I was so sick that even if I drank some vodka, I would throw it up because my body was so damaged. I can't even believe I'm alive. I'm Anthony. And I'm Tyson. We're recovering addicts. This is a podcast about journeys from the darkness of addiction to the sunlight of sobriety. So, um, what we talked to your brother last night, it was awesome. It was a very good conversation. I called him just a minute ago and asked if uh, he had done the interview. And he said, yeah, he said it helped him as much as it might have helped you guys. Or he said he thinks it helped you guys as much as it helped him. Because in recovery, whether you're doing it through AA or just, you know, family members or whatever you're doing, um, talking about it always helps. No doubt. No, absolutely. It kind of, it keeps you focused, if you will, or, or keeps things at hand. Uh, Tyson, I swear to God, it looked like you were drinking a beer right now. I'm like, um, <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'm like, I got an announcement to make, guys. I was going to say, like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> go big or go home. You know, I was thinking it's been, you know, what an now, year and seven months. I figured, why not? Ashley's here. <laughs> Ashley is just might as well. Yeah. Break the streak. <laughs> My husband still drinks. I bartend. You know, it's no big deal. <laughs> awesome. That's interesting. My brother um, is now sober, and he's a bartender as well. And he always would joke, he's like, sober bartender alert. Yeah. How long is <laughs> he sober? He's at like nine months, maybe. Ooh, that's like a lot harder for him than me. You know, yeah. He's been sober for almost eight years. I mean, back – in the beginning of my sobriety, I like knew my sobriety date, but it's just been yeah, long and yeah. my brain is messed up. I mean, the I- only reason I know mine is because it was on Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it kind of, in a good way, you don't, <clears throat> I guess you stop thinking about the specific date and counting. You count. I have an app that does the counting for me, so I don't, it's not a priority for me to yeah. count my days, but I wasn't a day counter to begin with. I mean, I had to, I started, my sobriety. And then I knew the date because I was in, is my date that I went into the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that was the date that I hit the brakes on everything. I became, yeah. you know, I started my sober journey there. And then after I had been out for a couple of months and working through the sobriety process on my own, um, and what I mean by that is I didn't go to AA or anything. I just kind of carved my own path through it and still do. Um, but I went and looked back cause I got this app because I wanted to do two things. I, I wanted to find out how much money I was saving on alcohol, cigarettes, and cocaine, um, which is a disgusting number, by the way. I don't ever, I look at it just to piss myself off if I need to slap myself in the face. Yeah, and it's so <laughs> annoying to think about 
how much money I literally blew up my nose. Yeah. It's fucking crazy to me. And then I have the date, um, the count date, my number of days. Did you figure out the number, Anthony? Like you were like, this is how much I spent on all that? Yeah, because I, I knew what my my patterns were and everything and my, my, my bicycles and you know, and I, I, I overcompensated a little bit because what what I wasn't counting for were the uh when I would call my drug dealer twice in the weekend or three times in the weekend because I was really digging my heels into that ride. So it would just <laughs> I, I depend. I did cocaine for a short period of my time, my run, should we say. Um I I remember the day that I actually like threatened my young my I have two older brothers but the younger one he went to Southern Illinois for college and I remember still being in high school and being like I heard that Coke was in school and if I ever hear that you do it I'll drive them and I like remember threatening him and then I was a hairstyle stunt on Chicago for a while and the first Christmas party I went to I was probably 20 and there was Coke and I was like no and then I yeah. did and I was like this is the greatest thing in the world <laughs> <laughs> I remember, because I'm a talker, and I remember I didn't need to talk to anybody. Like, people would get annoyed, so I would find a wall, you know? Yeah. And then I could never stop getting enough. Like, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 a.m. I mean, I'm trying to call you. I mean, oh, yeah. why are you sleeping? I need more. <laughs> no, I know. I know. It, it, and, it, and that's the thing that yeah. – um, it's you, I, you just turn into a caricature of yourself because you just are going and going and going. And I, that app, I look at it from time to time. And the only time I ever look at it is just to see how 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 good I guess how, that my count and then how much money I'm not spending. Well, it gives you a pat on the back too. Like, look at how much better I am right now. So oh yeah, absolutely. I don't care if you're a new new into sobriety or you've been in it for a long time. You still have like a sickness of the mind, and how healthy the mind gets, it's still going to creep back in because they say that. They say that addiction is cunning, baffling, and powerful. So you could be sober for eight years, and then something tricky slides into the radar, and there you are again, back in your disaster. And that's my story. My story is pretty much, I didn't even realize that I was sick until I was really beyond repair. And I mean, I was in the ICU a handful of times with the DTs, and I couldn't hold a glass of water. It was like, it was like this, and I would have to put a straw in a pint of vodka because if I didn't get enough alcohol in my system, the withdrawal was so severe, but I couldn't hold a cup to my mouth, and I was so sick that even if I drank some vodka, I would throw it up because my body was so damaged. I can't even believe I'm alive. So, yeah, it was like the scariest thing in the world, but sometimes you have to like show yourself the bank account or show yourself the receipts or, or what, how much hospital bills or damage and just be like, you know, I didn't do anything today or the past six months, but I'm better because look, look I'm not here anymore. Look at this bill. I can't do that anymore. I might've slept for two days straight, which I can't do because I have kids, but like, you know, sometimes you just get down on yourself because it's a sickness of the mind. And then any way you can pull yourself out a little bit, like pep yourself up a little, it helps, you know, this is scary putting together a, you know a walk to sobriety course it's not a magic bullet i'm not i'm not proposing that it's the cure for everybody but for me it was the, the routines that i used to kind of get sober um, on my own terms and i built these positive routines long story short you come to realize that your addictions know your every weakness every possible way to get in your head and screw with you your your addictions know because it's you and it, and it, and it, it preys on you in a weird way it becomes its own little monster
it's scary. You have to fight that fight head on. You can't hide from it. You have to acknowledge it. You've got to be aware of it. You've got to be, you have to recognize the triggers and make sure that you've already got kind of plays in place that you can use instead of defaulting to when I was using, mm-hmm. my default would be to stick my nose in another bag of blow, have a cigarette, slam a bunch of booze, whatever it was. So part of the recovery process is being what you just described is being aware of the demonic nature of the addiction and in confronting it with focus, I, I suppose is the way I, I maybe can describe it, but um, no, it, it's you're spot on in my opinion with, with, well, if you've ever spent any time in AA, you can tell a person that's in the program from six miles away. You just hear their, how they talk. There's a whole language. So um, one of the things they teach you is cunning, baffling and powerful. So that's how they describe alcoholism. And then you're going to end up in jails, institutions, or death. Those are, you know, some of the things or fundamentals that they share with you. And it is a good program. It's just, um, it didn't work as well. It it did. It worked so many wonders in my life. It's just not something where I can live for the rest of my life. I never saw myself marrying or dating another alcoholic. I'm like, I don't want to live in my disease. I want to, you know, get better and acknowledge it and, you know, grow, but I don't want to be like suffering in my bubble of I made mistakes growing up and I was sick, but now I'm better, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just it, it's best not to live in the mistakes today yeah. just because you've been making them for a long time yeah. kind of approach. And yeah. I agree with that. I mean, my, my wife still drinks and unfortunately smokes. I'm more mad about the smoking than the drinking, oddly enough. It's her thing and it's, it's her deal. But what I'm pointing out is it's not her problem. It's my problem that I have not, you know, and so she can do whatever she wants and she does. She doesn't put it in my face or she's not an asshole about it. She, you know, she has a glass of wine from time to time or maybe a beer or two here and there, but nothing crazy. I mean, we still have alcohol in the house. And it doesn't bother me. It really doesn't bother me. It's funny. Like it never triggers me. What does trigger me? Uh, I've got some core things that always set me off and, and it's, it's better now, but certain driving routes, the smell of gasoline, um, certain music or BPMs or, or, or like tempos to the music can, can set, cause cocaine, right? It goes hand in hand with just rampaging. <laughs> so uh, it always kind of sets me off. And oddly enough, the smell of, like a little bit of stale beer. Like if, if you're cleaning up after a picnic, you know what I mean? And you're, and you're throwing the beer cans away, that little whiff of beer that you get. Oh, I have no idea why, but it makes me want to rampage. And it's yeah. crazy. I, I, it's one of those things too that, but I, I say that because with even alcohol in the house, it, it never triggers me. I see it every day. There's a half a bottle of vodka, which is one of my main poisons when I was drinking. And it, it, we, we only have it here in case guests come over. Yeah. Cause I don't want to be, like you just said, I don't want to live inside the bubble of my addiction. I want people to come over and feel welcome. I just have a Perrier and I'm cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. You're following your own path of recovery. I, I have a question about that. Have you ever touched base on your root issues? Like a lot of reasons why us addicts turn to, I, this is my take on addiction. Yeah. I think that I have always had like the gene or whatever. Let's say I have this little gene inside that's always been there. But if I didn't wake the demon, I would have never suffered down the road I did. So my story is like I I went through some pain, emotional pain and some like growing up suffering, just like childlike issues that I didn't know how to deal with. And I turned to alcohol. And since I was drinking heavily for uh, self-medication, the gene or the monster was awoke. And then it, you know, grabbed onto me and hung, hung on for a while. But if you believe addiction is runs in the family, most of my family is alcoholics, then, you know, something's got to connect. 
for me, I had to go through AA and uh, rehab and things like that. And I found a lot of these like dark demons or something like they say, you're only as sick as your secrets. So as soon as I started like putting out why and the, the how and everything, that's when I actually was able to like talk about the things I thought I would take to the grave. And those things really did keep me drinking because I was so in this dark place of um, denial you know the nature and nurture thing i have a foot on both sides of that fence so the nature in the genes in the blood in the family and you know there's some and i'm not going to name names or anything but you know my dad was one of them and mm-hmm. you know you and but then i followed his example and again this is my problem not his i mean mm-hmm. so that was the the main thing here is is that like so the nature and the nurture part but i think the the overarching part of my addictions where I was always trying to be or pretend to be somebody I wasn't. I was never aware or living in my own truth. And so I used alcohol to create myself or mold myself into something. So I was always kind of using it as as like a mechanism to hide behind, but be outward. And it, it sounds a little bit strange to say that, but what I mean is I never acknowledged who I was or some of the, as you say, the inner secrets or demons that I had myself. I never confronted them and I was angry at my father. I was angry for this and angry for that. And a bunch of, there's a big long list. Um, but the point is I used alcohol to kind of hide from the pain, cover up the pain, and then present myself how I thought the world wanted to see me yeah. instead of who I really am. And once I put that shit down, it, after nearly dying and 11 days in the hospital, and it's all in episode one in, in my story, I realized that this is going to sound harsh, but fuck everybody who doesn't like me or doesn't want me around for who I really am. And I don't need them. And I'm, this is not a challenge. I'm just saying, like, I finally got to be good in my own skin. And once I did that, I was able to put everything down, <clears throat> look myself in the mirror and be like, I'm just a geek who really likes Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. who likes to exercise and spend time eating gummy bears and hanging out with my kids. Yeah. Once I said that was okay, then everything else kind of fall into place. And it, it was my everything and nothing moment that we, you know, refer to many times on the show. So yeah, that, that, that was my thing. And, and it, it's been, it's been two and a half years, like 27 something months, whatever it is. And it's been great. You know, I have loved every minute of it and I've got my moments. I mean, I can pretend or blow smoke everyone's ass here. It's, I've got some times where I do have to focus and bite down on the wooden spoon because it sucks. And some days you know, it's a hard day. And then I go weeks and it's not a hard day. I don't have a hard day in there. And then all of a sudden I've got to run for two weeks. Just telling Tyson, I was, I've been recently having bouts of anger issues that we covered on a bonus episode. One of the outcomes, and um, for me anyway, is bottled up tensions and things and it blows up in anger flashes. So, but it's been, it's been good because the podcast has helped me flex some sobriety and recovery muscles that apparently needed to be flexed because I had some things unfinished. And it's been very good going through this process of the podcast and and talking with other uh, recovering addicts because it's helped me kind of unearth a lot more stuff that needed to be unearthed. And it's been wonderful. Um, Some of it's been really, really fucking hard, but it's been very good because I'm even better now. And again, I am not one of those people to make everything shiny and nice. I'm saying that there's been, it's been a Last couple of weeks have been really fucking hard, but the find of the last few days have finally gotten really good again. But I, the one thing I will say is having gone through my process of my, on my own terms, the way I've done it, I used the routines that I built and I went to my stables of kind of what I call like my happy place stables in my head. And, and I used the processes and my knee jerk reactions were positive and not negative this time. And that, that's been everything for this going through it that I learned how to handle my addictions and respond to the triggers positively as opposed to buying more cocaine. So that's, that's the main thing for me. And, and that's what I love about this 
about what we've discovered on the podcast is uh, addicts can't be willy nilly. We, we, I, I, I shouldn't say every addict. I can't be willy nilly. I need some form and function and I need to have a little bit of process and routine in my life. If I don't have that, I can't just throw things up to the wind and hope it works out because it never works out. What happens to me is I say, fuck it. And I say, fuck it twice or two or three times. And all of a sudden I'm on the wrong path uh, for me. Um, so, but I like to actually turn it around and ask you some questions, Ashley, and figure out a little bit about where for you, you know, where this all started pre-addiction. If there is such a thing, that's a term that we use. We make it up on our show here. But- I was an athlete and um, I didn't drink or smoke or anything. So um, my story is uh, the people that have known me my whole life look at that period of my life and don't recognize me. It's shocking that that had happened. But um, it's shocking for me as well. But I, I grew up, um, started, I started gymnastics at three years old and I did it for until I was high school. And it was one of those, you know, five hours a day, Monday through Friday practices. And then I competed and, um, traveled on the weekends and I didn't have a life. I was in school and practice and that was it. And then, you know, my disease, or addiction didn't really start for me until later in life. Um, I remember feeling like I started to be different in my mind, like my senior year of high school. Um, But I didn't, I wasn't like an addict or drinking or anything crazy at that point. A couple years after high school, when I was, you know, a hairstylist downtown Chicago and I had my own apartment on Lakeshore Drive and I worked on Oak Street and I would walk down the lake to work and I worked at like one of the richest, nicest places. And, you know, I was one of like the hot chicks that like ran city and um we partied all the way down state street to home every night oh i had my own place but my girlfriends we all like we felt like we ran the town then and um, i wasn't even drinking overly crazy then it was like somewhere a couple years into that life where i i lost some sort of piece of me and the drinking and the it was drinking, you know, I had tried drugs, but I wasn't addicted. So I think my, I identify as an alcoholic, like 23 years old ish. And, and I, I mean, I was getting sicker and sicker for years. Like it went on for years. I didn't really start getting my life together until I was, I don't know, late twenties, you know, like 30, you know, I was still early sobriety for me. My run was so hard that like, it took a long time for my brain to function. I couldn't remember things, you know, it was one day at a time. So I don't know. Um, And you started out there on state street and when you were like 21, probably. Yeah. yeah, I moved down there when I was um, turning 20. So I went to beauty school right out of high school. Love it. And then I moved downtown pretty much because I was com- sick of commuting and uh, sure. my yeah. parents were like, well, you're too young. You're not moving to the city. And I'm like, watch me. So uh, <laughs> they, my mom was like, well, you have to have a doorman and you have to live like walking distance. And I'm like, then are you going to pay my bills? I mean, a doorman, come on. And right. yeah. so, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. How you said we knew everybody ran the town, all that. I, I felt that way too. I feel like 
you you have to have a period when you you're in the in crowd and yeah. you know everybody yeah. you're at all the hot spots oh yeah right i mean we i i we did i knew everybody i would there would be a line wrapped well first of all since we lived in the city we didn't party on the weekends you know the weekend was yeah the that's weekend. for yeah, it's for amateurs, no doubt. Or to yeah, the, the, the bridge and tunnel crowd, if you will, for, in New York, the B&Ts, but uh, in Chicago, they're just in the drive-ins. Oh, that's hilarious. Wednesday nights, Thursday nights. Uh, no, Mondays were, like, really good. But it was, Industry night. Yeah, industry night. It was just so, so much fun. And then, you know, the, the disease just kept getting worse and worse for me. And I, I honestly kind of wanted to die. I wasn't the kind of person that could kill myself, but I really wanted the bus to hit me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. sick. When do you feel like it turned from, hey, I'm just, you know, we're out running the town and everything's going great to the point where you're like, I don't care if a bus hits me. Yeah, I think I just lost hope, you know. I mean, I don't even know if I lost hope. I think that I just didn't want to work so hard anymore. You know, like I have always been an over fucking achiever. And and I'm looking around, you guys, this is going to sound bad, but you know, I grew up in Naperville. All of mm-hmm. the kids are driving Hummers and BMWs to school. And then they're all going to college on mom and dad's dime. And then when they're home from the weekend, you know, like I'm young, like with them, they're, they're out of town for, or they're back in town for summer or it's this break. And you know, they're just out and about and drinking and partying and they have the nicest clothes and all this stuff. And I was kind of getting like, pissed that I literally work 60, 65 hours a week and I make good money. But like, I don't get that special treatment. I started getting pissed off about that. And so like one day I was just like, fuck it. And I like leased my apartment and like moved out of Chicago and quit my job and was like pissed. I was like pissed at the world. But it's just <laughs> funny what you go through when you're young, you know, you're yeah. so dumb. <laughs> I'm just looking back like how fucking dumb. How dumb. <laughs> well, you know, I, I get it though. Yeah. I mean, um, so you're, you're, Having fun, bouncing from club to club, not waiting in line, right. whatever it is. No. And then, like, how can you share, like, the volume you're drinking? Because you did allude to you needed to put a straw in a pint of vodka. That was, like, the later, the, late, the beginning. You guys asked when I identified with it. Yeah. Somewhere around the time of, like, not waiting in line. That's when, you know, I was starting to drink heavily, but it – didn't get didn't did you still feel like you were kind of like one of the 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 crowd meaning like "Ah, i don't drink any more than anybody else oh no i had to like drop off the face of the earth like all of my friends all of my family everybody i know drinks or parties you know it's not um they say change your playground and change your playmate these are all things i learned years ago in in aa you know you can't move geographically because you move with yourself you can't just like you know fuck everybody in this town and like screw people over and then move to the next town and think oh my problems are solved i mean you go with so yeah wherever you go there you are i was just curious because i remember i went through a phase like that where like i was clearly drinking more than everybody else but you know i was going out to the nightclubs going to the bars and just thinking ah you know i probably drink about as much as everyone else i just and then later learned like that i was probably two, three Xing, even the other partners. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that happened to me at some point, but like, I don't remember because I got so much got past it. that mark. Like I was the drunk of the drunks of the drunks. Like I was, I didn't go out. I didn't go to the bars and hang out with my friends. I couldn't keep myself together. You know, I didn't put lipstick on straight or like have a conversation. I was like drinking a handle of vodka at some points, you know, by yeah. myself. And I weigh 150. I just had a baby. So I'm a little bit heavier than I usually am, but like I'm a small person. Person and a handle of vodka. I mean, it was ugly. It was so ugly. 
I was unrecognized. How, how, how long did it take you to work up to a handle, would you say? Like from, say, when you were 21? A years. I mean, it, was, a years. it wasn't right away. I didn't just, like, dive in. I was a happy person. I was, like, athletic. Yeah. I, like, went for runs and, like, had a group. I had a life. And I just turned it off. I was, like, goodbye. Like, shut the computer. Yeah. It's over. I'm going to hide in my bubble and slowly commit suicide. But I was just so lost in my own mind that... I didn't really care. And I didn't like, I, I quit my job and I moved in with some friends. I like couch crash. And then I, um, what is that called? Couch surfing. Couch surfing. Yeah. So I did. You can crash on a couch too, though. I like that. Yeah. I just on my brother's couch and then like my friend, my girlfriend's couch. And then I was finally, they're like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I just like, don't know. Yeah. For now, I'm going to have some fucking vodka. Give me your vodka, damn it. You know? And I just like moved in with my parents and just pretended I didn't have a problem. And my parents, I love them. It's not their their fault, but they're very sweep it under the rug. She's fine. There's nothing wrong with her. She can't walk down a flight of stairs, but she's okay. You know, like I quit and just stopped and like, they didn't say anything. So I just kept getting worse. And then one day I was like, dude, I need to go to the hospital. And I couldn't even talk. I was like, I need to go to the hospital. And that was when they like did every blood work, every test, you name it. They did everything to me. And I was there in the ICU for over a week, three times. Wow. And I, I was trying to, escape the hospital because I thought they kidnapped me. I didn't realize that I was just like withdrawing and going through the DTs and stuff. I didn't know these things. So I really thought that the doctors were like murderers. So I was trying to like rip my IVs out and take off running. It was scary. I mean, that I'm alive. I don't even know. I don't know. I've been through all of those moves in the hospital too. So I, oh yeah, I've, I've been in the hospital a handful of times. Yeah. A couple of times I can't believe I lived either. Other times I've just done outlandish things and yeah. thought doctors were space aliens trying to take me away. Right? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh about it. I'm sorry, but it's just, I, I could see because a guest for, in our fourth episode, Roland, talked specifically about like ER hopping, like he would know what ERs to go to to get the drugs that he needed to continue to kind of come down and avoid the, the, the detox layer mm-hmm. and then get the drugs needed to go out and then pick, pick up drinking. So he learned where to go to kind of skip, skip the, the, the valley of the hangover. Of the hangover. <laughs> it, it, so uh, I get what you're saying. And he did talk about where he would manifest the doctors into different beings and things. <laughs> but yeah, because I, I would do the same thing, but in my garage. I wonder what my wife and my kids always saw. It's just this random guy yelling like Tourette's base screaming in the garage. God damn it. You know, just yelling. I mean, Tyson got a little taste of it today on a phone call. We were talking and I, I lost my mind at my kids in a funny way. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so I, I, I get it, actually. I mean, you end up there. It goes slow, right? People don't realize. So the way I like to describe it is the days go slow the years go fast mm-hmm. is the way i can maybe look back yeah. on it because in the middle of it you feel like it just keeps going and going and going yeah. um and it never stops and it goes quick and then you look back and you're like holy shit yeah it's nuts but i wouldn't even take any of it back to be honest i mean i've done some fucked up shit and i've hurt some people and my disease has literally ran my life i mean it was pretty ugly but i no, I can help people because of the places I've been. The person I've become yeah. today, because of that nutso person before. I mean, I'm still fucking nuts, but it's a lot more tame. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I speak to people. I'm, I still bartend, but I'm trying 
currently I'm in a, I'm going into state form right now. So I'm not going to see as many faces, but I'm going to have as many conversations, you know, sales to sales. I mean, you can relate to every fucker on the planet. If you, if you can admit that you have any kind of problem or disease, I use it in every single day life to help people through their shit and just put a smile on my face too. Cause talking about it is like gold. It's like so close to my heart that it's, it's close to my heart as my family. Cause it's part of me and I go through it for something. I do believe that there is a purpose to all of this in a positive sense. And, you know, having gone through this myself, one of the main purposes for the show is to help others through the show to listen and know that there is hope that there are people just like us, out there, when you're in the middle of it, you think that you're all alone and there's nowhere to turn. And that is just yeah, not true. true. It's true that that's how you feel. That's what I, I'm Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You and and it's one that's gone through anything. You think you're alone and right. when you find people like what you're doing. It's the, the beauty. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. Cause one uh, addict to another is pure, like holy. I think it's, yeah. it's like a, a spiritual thing. So there's, there's two things that, um, that I always tell people like when, when they're telling me that, you know, they're an addict and I'm like, you know, not only are you not alone, but there's people out there that are in much worse condition than you. Everyone thinks that they're leading the pack. And the truth of the matter is, and this is not a pissing contest, but what I'm saying is there's people out there that drink a lot more than me that do worse drugs in meaning the amount and what they're doing worse than me. So you always think that you're at the pinnacle of it all. And the quite the, the truth of the matter is that it's just not the case. I mean, there's always people. So, you can lean into and get away from that ego-driven concept of yourself where you feel like, you know, no one can be like me. I'm, and that's just bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other part is the, the, no one fucking cares. Like everyone, once you get rid of the chase of the crowd and, you know, one of the things for, at least for me and, and Tyson can speak to this himself, but I always went out because I thought people wanted to see me. They don't give a fuck about me. I was just a guy buying the next drink or buying the next bag of blow or whatever the fuck it was, or the next guy to go out and have a cigarette with you. Yeah. Nobody gives a fuck about anything. That's the first <laughs> lesson. Right. Everything's your fault. In any, any area, nobody gives a fuck. I don't care. Like my husband isn't an alcoholic or anything, but he's like so in his mind. You know, I, I, we had our masks on walking into the grocery store a few days ago and I'm like, oh, let's take a selfie. And he was like, you know, like, look, and I'm like, do you care what fucking people are doing? Like looking at you, like you're embarrassed <laughs> to take a picture with me because people are looking at you. Like, come on, buddy. Nobody cu- fucking cares about you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it is absolutely true. And it, they can't the one- they care about you, right? Like nobody even has enough time to barely make sense, yeah. much less give a fuck about you. Yeah. I, and I always tell people like, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable in a good sense. Yeah. Like that's a big part of it. Like you've got to, in order to make change, you've got to be different. I mean, it's just as silly as all this sounds. And I don't want to talk in quips because it gets on my nerves. But what I'm trying to say is it's the same for everybody. And it's a little bit different for everybody, but the threads, the narratives, mm-hmm. the structure of this whole process is it's similar enough where people can listen to this and, and you know, get a sense of hope and realize that you can make it through. And I'm curious, actually, like for you, so you're in Naperville, crouch, couch surfing at mom and dad's. So when, and like, and you're now at the three week, three times in a week at the ICU. So like, how, how bad does it get? You're doing a handle of vodka day ish or something. What, what kind of made you say, fuck it. I, I need to make some changes here. Was there a moment or a, a situation or something? Cause 
you know, everyone we've had on the show had that one moment. We call it the everything and nothing moment. Um, and again, that's just a term that Tyson and I have coined. It, it's not clinical and it's not anything from any book. It's uh, so I don't want to lay claim. I don't want people to listen yeah, to this and go, right. that that's a thing. Right. Like that epiphany, that, that moment of clarity or, or where you say, wow, like the clouds part and you just, that was it. A car accident. I was drinking and driving in Arizona. I, I live in Arizona. And I rear-ended somebody drunk. And as sick as I was, I got out of the car. My car is totaled. And uh, I looked at the car, and the lady's out of her minivan, and she's screaming, what if my kids were in the car? And I was like, I'm fine. Nobody knows that I'm drunk. We're good. I'm going to walk away from this. Everybody's good. The cop's cool with me. He doesn't know. He has no idea. And I saw another cop pull up and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I am golden. You know, it's just like these sick lies you tell yourself where, I mean, how could I not be clearly so drunk like that I could even think it was fine, you know? Right. And um, I went to court for it uh, almost two years after just because court takes forever. And um I was so sick that I had a drink to go to court because I was still physically dependent on alcohol. So I'm in court and I have a lawyer and he sentences me to uh, three years of I intensive IPS. So intensive probation service. So like, I still don't know what I'm not clear in my mind, you know, how bad this is. I've never been um, on IPS or I've never had any kind of like that before. So I go um, and she's, my lawyer's like, you know, you need to go meet your probation officer and you smell like alcohol. And I'm like, what? And he's like, do you know if the judge would have smelt you, you would have gone away to prison? And I was like, huh? And she, he was like, well, you can't go. I was like, can I just go meet her tomorrow? And he's like, no, you need to go right now. And you have to go meet your, her name's Kara Singer and you have to meet her at one. And I'm like, okay. So I like go and I'm sitting in front of my probation officer for three hours and oh my God. like, okay, now you need to take a breathalyzer because it's just protocol. Don't worry. And I was like, okay. And I blow into it like numbers. I should be dead. And she's like, the fact that I had no idea that you were sober, that you weren't sober and you've been having a clear conversation with me for three hours and you're blowing like these numbers, you're clearly like sicker than I thought. So she called the judge that day and said, you know, you sentenced her to three years of IPS and she part of the deal. She can't drink ever again or like, you know, until um, the IPS is over or else she goes back to jail. So the probation officer calls the judge and he says, we can't prove that she drank after we got sent after she got sentenced. So she could have drank before she went to court. So the fact that we can't prove when she drank, let her be, don't, don't slap her on the wrist, but tell her that if she ever is out of pocket, which means you're not yeah. say you are going to be, or she ever violates probation in any way, this deal is gone and she's going to jail. I never drank again. That was the that was the last the day I went to court. I drank before I went to court to so I wasn't shaking in front of the judge. And that was the last drink I ever had. So 
Wow. Wow. So that I, it saved my life. So I wouldn't be talking to you today if that didn't happen. Like I'll call people in the probation services today and say, you know, like you guys save lives because you saved mine. You know, this shit sucks, but it saved my life. I, I love what you just said. Like people, they're easy to point fingers at and be angry with and hate and blame. But at the end of the day, they're really doing things like that they're doing to save your life, yeah. to prevent you from going to jail, to make sure that you don't die an addict. Mm-hmm. It's so they, they really are. I And if you're them, you're still in the phase of not taking full responsibility for yourself because I've, I've stared at a, a probation officer myself before. And when I was the time I've done it, when I was unhappy, was really, I was unhappy with myself, frankly. So. Yeah. That's uh wow. So you made it through. I mean, and that was your moment and that's a big moment that may I ask how long you've been sober. Uh, it's almost eight years. Eight years. Wow, that's wonderful. Have you had, so for me, it's been about two and a half years or so, and I have what I call like swinging moments. It probably doesn't sound exactly right, but if you take it, taken into this context, what I mean is I, I have triggered moments where they come more frequently certain times for whatever reason, and they come in spurts. I haven't bitten. I'm still on the wagon and I'm doing well, but sometimes I really have to stay focused bite down the wooden spoon, as I say, and, and not smoke, drink, or do blow. Right. And I have to kind of go to my happy place to avoid that and go to my routines. It's normally walking. For but my experience, you won't have to struggle with that for the rest of your life. I mean, I, I personally think that it will sneak in and temp- tempt you for the rest of your life. But if you're having to deal with these temptations and, you know, I call it reservations, you know, like maybe tomorrow or something um you're it won't happen as frequently some point in this system that you're building for yourself it's going to become this like life and this part of you that you never will even want to see again you're just going to be a beautiful form of yourself that you don't need it you don't want it you're still going to eventually want it at a point because it's you know what it's like but it will always end up where you left it off you know, you will yeah. become that person as quick as you started, you know. No doubt. No doubt. And I'm 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 proud to say that I, I've avoided uh going the wrong way from uh response side of things. I haven't drank or anything or smoked or partied, which is good. But there are long stretches where it doesn't even cross my mind. Yeah. Uh, it's also been good to have it back in my face a bit too, in a way to kind of challenge myself. And I say that and I'm not being funny. I mean I to kind of remind me that I'm still at the end of the day, I have to own this shit. Mm-hmm. You can't just forget about it. Like there are, you really do have to be aware of it. It can't just, you can't just hope it stays good. You, you have to work to keep it good is, is I guess maybe the main core of my message here for me. And maybe that's not for everybody, but for me, that certainly is the thing. Like I purposely work out seven days a week mm-hmm. in a little morning routine that I have box, bike, walk, whatever. And if I don't do that, it throws me off for the day. Like if I travel as Tyson, I will drag his ass with me and go box in the fucking morning mm-hmm. um, or walk a few miles, whatever it is. And I need to have that routine in my life. And, and that, so I've turned like many of the guests on the show, they've turned the addiction against itself. So I now use my addictive personality to be addicted to good things instead of bad things, which, which works for me. I'm not saying this should work for everybody, but for me, it does work. It works for me as well. I'll second to that. Mm-hmm. Eight years later, you're a mom. Mm-hmm. Things 
you look great. You sound great. You seem very, very happy. And I'm proud that you came on the show to tell your story. And that's the one thing, too, from all the guests. It's truly an honor to have guests to come on and tell their story because it takes guts to do it. It really does take guts to do it. I'm scared and nervous. I mean, (laughs) I have no problem talking about this with a stranger on the street. But for some reason, this moment was kind of (laughs) scary. We'd like to have you back on the show a lot because you tell a really good story. You're very, very good. I could tell you bartended because you do have good chops that way. It's very nice. You poured me a drink before, Ashley. <laughs> you look familiar. I don't know. I mean, I- <laughs> give me the rundown. Did you live in Arizona recently? No, I have lived here for 10 years. So I moved okay. in 2010 on my birthday, 2010. Um, and honestly, I have so many stories that I, I go on runs every morning and it's a like hundred fucking degrees. And I'm still out there running. <laughs> I don't want to look like I just had a baby and I will do anything it takes to look like I just, you know, <laughs> running in arizona that's fucking that's you're dedicated man because i would fucking melt i mean i'm a chicago guy my god i can't imagine well you know it is harder in chicago in the summer because the humidity like it's like running in a plastic fucking bag you know but here <laughs> it's not as bad it's hot but i mean it's awesome because i lived in arizona for a bit uh my parents and brother still live there so i was wondering maybe a What's that? Tucson or Phoenix? Tucson, but I hung out a lot in Phoenix when I was there too. I have a lot of friends there. That's actually where I where I started my my sobriety journey. I, I had to bring a shaman all the way from the Amazon jungle to, to yeah. pull the spirit of alcohol out of me. <laughs> and that's where I was that's doing all that stuff before I finally got to it. <laughs> that's awesome. So, but yeah, that's funny. You do look really familiar, but you tell a great story. So I would have never guessed that you were uh, very fearful to get on the show. You're very well spoken. This part, like new, I don't even know why we're we're these fears, these made up. Probably just thinking about it. Well, yeah, but I go on these runs, and I'm thinking of like all these like ways I'm going to come about and tell my story and all these things, and I'm just I can't do you know come organically. And then I got like stressed out, and then I was like I can't do it, and then I called my and he was like, it's fine. And you're just having a conversation. I'm like, okay. Well, it's true though. I mean, because you're, you are, I'm not going to say airing dirty laundry because you, you know, people have been sober and, and they've shared their story before, but it's, it's in a different circumstance because you're talking to strangers. Yeah. Not that that's the problem, but it's being recorded and there's a podcast and there's a whole thing, but people are going to make fun of me because it's going to go out there. <laughs> Not at all. Absolutely. In fact, um, you really are gifted at this. It's it's quite nice. I mean, you, we'd love to have you back to tell some stories. We're going to be putting together some bonus episodes where we talk about – we're not going to be glamorizing or romanticizing or any of that shit, but we're going to be telling some of the funny sides of this as well because let's be honest, there's two sides of these stories. I mean, they always end up ugly, dark, and nasty, but at the end of the day – no one starts doing blow and drinking because it's boring, mm-hmm. you know? So there's some funny stories in there and you know, we've got some funny stories about Vegas and long, long list of shit that we've all been through, but we want to have people come on and tell some entertaining stories mm-hmm. so that the, uh, uh, anyone out there listening to realizes that, you know, not every fun time, mm-hmm. you know, ends in a good way. I mean, a lot of times, like that's the other part of it where you think that you're having just a good time and you're partying, but, you know, mine started on the weekends and then it went Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and so on and so forth. And then it was seven days a week, three times a day, rampaging. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, when I'm waking up in the morning, you know, at five, just so I can get to my cocaine before anyone gets up, that's a fucking problem. I mean, but it doesn't start that way, right? It starts, honestly enough, in the bathroom at a bar at midnight once a week kind of bullshit. So that's the side of it that people seem to forget that there's a genesis of this evil beast, as you say, and 
you know, we want to have some of those stories as well and, you know, talk about where it led us. So I do have one more question for you, Ashley, is it sounds like you've got some really nice routines running and exercising. Um, is that really kind of part of your sobriety process to these days is in your routines? Oh, yes. I am as creature of a routine that you could probably call me at the same at a different time every day. And that time I'm always doing the same thing. I I wake up. Um, my routine is changing right now because I'm sure this COVID thing has really changed my life in a good way. I'm really using it for some positive growth, but um, my routines have changed a little bit because of it. But I used to, you know, uh, run and lift um, in the morning and then I'd go bartend. And if I was bartending in the morning, I would run and lift afterwards. And, you know, little goals like my brother, who you spoke with yesterday, he's a big runner and he... Um, got me into running before I, I hated it before. So right after I had my first baby, Gavin's three years old now, he was like, you got to train for a half marathon. And I'm like, no way that is never going to happen. I'm not a runner. And somehow I, he just convinced me because I had just had a baby, you know, you go back to the fat girl thing and you're like, I don't want to be a girl. If I can go run 13 miles to lose all the baby weight, I'm there. So I, yeah. I became, became a runner. So um, his, my brother's um, sobriety motivated me. And then, you know, I have a little sister. I love him. So everything he does, I do. He's going to get drunk. I'm gonna get drunk. <laughs> He's going to get sober. I'm going to get sober. Let's go for a run. So He's awesome. He was a really, his story was wonderful as well. I'm, I'm excited to air it. Uh, I, and I'm not a runner, you know, um, personally, but um, I like to walk and I have other things. But running these old 50-year-old knees, I don't think can take it. Well, Bad I, shit would happen. My kids always, my kids always give me shit. They're like, dad, if you fall down will you actually blow a hip you're gonna be a cycler you're gonna be one of them guys with on them tight spandex in arizona because that's where they're all at i know outside of my parents house there's all kinds of guys out there and it always seems the older the guy the tighter the shorts the tighter the shorts and they always have those bikes that look like you're sitting down in like a peach basket or something and they pedal forward you know which ones i mean like you're like leaning i don't know what to how to describe them but they're bikes that are like two feet off the ground do you know what oh, you're saying? Talking about too, yeah. That's a that's I think a niche of your cyclist, right? Yeah, I I, I, I ride my mountain bike, you know, and that's good enough for me. Um, in other things, but yeah, you're you're nobody until you get those those tight shorts. Gotta right? get the gotta get the tight shorts, but nobody looks good in spandex. You certainly don't look good if I when I take them off, like I start I go Michelin man, okay. you know, because they keep me all sucked in, so and then you take off, and then earlier they do fucking care. People are looking at you. If you're wearing those, take back what I said earlier. So, Ashley, just maybe one more question, and we can we can let you go. Get back to your wonderful family. Um, uh, just in parting, any mm-hmm. not necessarily words of wisdom, but any, yeah. maybe some words of confidence or or some support or or a message to anyone out there listening that maybe needs to take their first step or get back on the path of sobriety. I think that. Um, and it doesn't believe me. It doesn't have to be prophetic. It doesn't have to be philosophic. It oh, can no. just be how you live. And yeah. you know, any words of well, any any advice that you might offer. I mean, for for me, I love helping people. If anybody at any time ever came up to me and asked for help in any way, I mean, I would do whatever it took to help the person because it takes a lot of courage in any form of help to. It takes the courage to ask, you know, that's a huge step. I felt so alone in this disease and in my state that I didn't think anybody could help me or anybody had any, had ever gone through anything I had ever gone through. And I wish that I would have just like lift, opened my hand to like one person in my life that I could have trusted the smallest amounts, you know, just like 
you know, not a mom or a dad or a friend. Like, even if you just want to keep it discreet, you just want to reach out to that coworker, do it. Because people want to listen and help. When you have some sort of issue and you reach out to anybody in your life that you feel close enough to, that might be the only step that you needed. Like, for people like me, I needed to almost kill somebody. But if I could have just spoken up and asked for a little bit of help, I think, I mean, help maybe not, be, I, I, maybe I didn't even know I needed help. Maybe I just needed to share a little bit about my experiences, what I was going through. And that one person could have guided me. I mean, just reach out to anybody because if I didn't reach out before that whole accident, I mean, I probably would have died somewhere in there. You know, I, I got comfortable in my skin talking about my problems and that's where my healing started was I swear you're only as sick as your secrets keep that in your mind you know those fucking things will kill you and people don't care about that so if you can share those deep dark things with a trusted confident person you can get through these things I swear it's only like it's those secrets that keep you there